Uh, for those of you who are here during announcement time, you know that I changed my plans about what I was going to be preaching today. And that was at midnight last night. So I'm preaching again a sermon I've preached before, just adapting and adjusting a few things this morning. But the opening sentence that I wrote down last time I preached it was, in a very real sense, the world is in turmoil. Some things never change. Last time I preached, there was current world events. There were current world events that I brought forth to substantiate that point that the world is in a very real sense in turmoil. And this time around, lo and behold, I can point to more world events. There is, of course, the war in Ukraine and there's the intellectual and moral decay of the West manifest clearly in the nomination of a Supreme Court justice who doesn't even know what a woman is. And at the personal level, not much has changed either since last time I preached this sermon. Here's the exact words I said last time by way of introduction. Quote, people we love get sick, suffer and die. People we look up to let us down. People we trust betray us. People who should take care of us, abuse and take advantage of us. Some things never change. The world has been like this ever since Paul wrote these words to the Philippians so long ago. The world was very much in a very real sense in turmoil then. Life was not all roses under um, Roman rule. And of course, people got sick and suffered and died back then, and there was all kinds of calamity and turmoil. And there was difficulties in people's personal lives back then. There was last time I preached this sermon. There is again today. Like this is the way the world always is. And, and one day it's you, the next day it's me, and the next day it's someone else. But everybody's always going through stuff, and the world is always in chaos in, in some sense. Into this world, through Paul, God says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. What does this mean? We're going to look at this verse today, breaking it down into three parts. Rejoice in the Lord always. So let's begin with the word rejoice. And the first thing I'd like to point out is that rejoicing is compatible with sorrow and grief. Paul wrote this very letter of Philippians from prison. Do you think that sitting in a Roman jail he was naive? and oblivious to and unaffected by suffering? Of course not. Moreover, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul, who the same Paul who also penned Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that he is sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And of course, we remember our Lord by the graveside of his friend and the record that John gives us of this event in the shortest verse in the Bible. 
John chapter 11 and verse 35. When Lazarus died, we read simply this. Jesus wept. Rejoicing always, therefore, is not the same as being chipper. John Piper contrasts joy with being chipper, bouncy, lighthearted, playful. Allow me a lengthy quote from Piper himself here. He says, those of you who have listened to Piper can probably hear his expression and his mannerisms, and I, I won't make it a comedy routine and try to emulate him. But just listen and hear Piper here. I turn with dismay from church services that are treated like radio talk shows where everything sounds chipper, frisky, high-spirited chatter designed to make people feel lighthearted and playful and bouncy. I look at those church services and I say to myself, don't you know that people are sitting out there who are dying of cancer? whose marriage is a living hell, whose children have broken their hearts, who are barely making it financially, who have just lost their job, who are lonely and frightened and misunderstood and depressed, and you are going to try to create an atmosphere of bouncy, chipper, frisky, lighthearted, playful worship? And of course, there will be those who hear me say that. This is still Piper. There are those who will hear me say that and say, Oh, so you think that what those people need is a morose, gloomy, sullen, dark, heavy atmosphere of solemnity. Piper says, No. But what they need is to see and to feel indomitable joy in Jesus. In the midst of suffering and sorrow. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Christian. And, and quote. <laughs> Christian, you don't have to paste a perma-smile on your face in order to be always rejoicing. You don't have to come to church and be chipper and lighthearted and frisky and bouncy and playful. But you may and you ought to be truly joyful, no matter what the circumstances. How is this possible without ignoring or denying difficult realities? I mean, after, as Piper just said, people are dying of cancer, people's marriages are in shambles, people's Financial situation is bleak. People are lonely and frightened and misunderstood. How are you supposed to be joyful in these circumstances? Well, rather than being a reality ignoring or a reality denying feeling that we can only experience by convincing ourselves that suffering isn't real, joy is a reality-embracing enjoyment of something that transcends our suffering. If the source of our suffering is heavier, bigger, and deeper than the source of our joy, 
then our joy could never persist in the midst of suffering. But if the source of our joy is bigger and deeper and heavier than the source of our suffering, then our suffering cannot ultimately rob us of joy. If our joy is in health, then we lose our joy when we're faced with sickness and disease. If our joy is in life, then we lose our joy when we're faced with death. If our joy is in comfort, then we lose our joy when we are put in uncomfortable circumstances. If our joy is in our relationships with other people, then we lose our joy when those relationships fall apart. You get the idea? What we need is a source of joy that is heavier and deeper and bigger than the sources of our suffering. We need not to deny reality, but embrace more reality. Embrace that there is something bigger than our suffering. Not deny that there is something bigger than our suffering, but embrace more reality. That there actually is something bigger than our suffering and our difficulty. And embrace all of reality. The suffering and the, this source of joy which is bigger. We need to learn to enjoy something that our suffering cannot take away from us. We need to learn to enjoy something that death, disease, discomfort, the loss of relationships, whatever cannot touch, cannot take away. And that something that transcends everything else is not actually a something, but a someone. We are instructed not only to rejoice, that was our first point, but we're moving on here to our second. We are not only instructed to rejoice, but to rejoice in the Lord. We need to learn to enjoy the Lord. We already saw that Paul was in prison when he wrote the book of Philippians. He was not oblivious to suffering. But Paul's here in a Roman jail writing to these Christians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And he's able to do that because his source of joy was heavier, deeper, and bigger than the suffering that he faced. Paul rejoiced in the Lord. And he writes to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord. Another biblical writer who dealt with this subject was King David in the Old Testament. His life was almost perpetually in danger. At most points in his life, someone or the other wanted to kill him. In his youth, it was the king. After he himself became king, David's sons murdered one another. One of his sons raped his daughter, or one of his daughters. One of David's sons led a rebellion against him, overthrowing his kingdom. Look, David's family was in absolute turmoil. David suffered immensely. Yet in spite of this, in Psalm 16, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
And he turns to address the Lord directly and he says, You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's saying, I love my lot in life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Obviously for David, in the midst of it all, God was a great source of joy. David rejoiced in the Lord. This meant at least three things which are observable from the rest of David's writings. David enjoyed God's character. David enjoyed God's actions. And David enjoyed communion or companionship with God. We see in Psalm 63 that David says to the Lord, Your steadfast love is better than life. In Psalm 48 and verse 1, David says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In Psalm 50 and verse 6, David says, The heavens declare His righteousness. In Psalm 50 verse 2, he says, The perfection of beauty, God shines forth. David enjoyed God who is the steadfastly loving one, the one who is faithful to his covenant promises, the righteous one, the beautiful one. David enjoyed who God is. Before God even does anything, David enjoys God. He rejoices in God. And David enjoyed what God did. David enjoyed God's actions. He says in Psalm 68 and verse 5, Father to the fatherless and protector of widows, is God in His holy habitation. In Psalm 46 and verse 1, David says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. David enjoyed not only who God is, but what God does. He loved how God is a father to the fatherless, how He protects widows, how He offers refuge and strength to those who are in trouble. When people need God and cry out to God, God's there to help. David loves that. He rejoices in that. And David enjoyed communion or companionship with God. David writes in Psalm 119, verse 164, Seven times a day I praise you. And in Psalm 22, and verse 1, even when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at it. It says, my God. My God. David was not content to rejoice in God from afar. At arm's length. The way that we might rejoice in the televised performance of a musician or an athlete. We watch something on TV and we rejoice in it. But we have no personal connection to the people that we see on TV. We don't know them. They don't know us. We can't, we can't say, yeah, that's my, that's my guy, man. That's my friend. That's my boy. They don't know us. 
We don't know them. We might rejoice in them, but there's no personal connection. David doesn't want to rejoice like that. As if there's something objectively praiseworthy about God, but he's far away, he's distant. We don't know him, he doesn't know us. David wants to draw close to God and own him as his God. My God. My God. This God who is full of steadfast love, this God who is righteous, this God who is good, this God who is a father to the fatherless, this God is my God. As Christians, all of the aforementioned ways of rejoicing in God are open to us also. We, like David, may rejoice in who God is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God hasn't changed since King David was sitting on his throne in Israel so long ago. God has not changed. If he was praiseworthy then, if David could rejoice in him then, delight in him then, we can rejoice and delight in him now. He has not changed. We, like David, may rejoice in what God has done. Because he has not changed, God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. And anyone who cries out to God for help finds God willing and able to save. God's arm was not too short and too weak to reach in and to save and to pick up and to uphold back then. And God's arm is not too weak now. And God is still willing to let us take hold of Him and cry out, My God! My God! We, like David, may draw close to God and own Him as ours. Though God hasn't changed, believe it or not, at this juncture in history, we can see God even more clearly than David did back then. We have more grounds for enjoying who He is and His actions. More confidence than even David has that God is willing to take us as His people. We may have deeper communion with God than David ever did. As I've said many times before, Jesus is the noonday sun in the sunrise of progressive revelation. Imagine you were born and raised somewhere where there were no Bibles, no churches, no Christians to tell you. There's a certain amount that you could know from nature that there is a God you know some basic things but when it comes to who is God if one day you found a Bible in your hands and you started reading in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and so on and so forth and you started reading you would understand though God hasn't changed since day one you would understand more and more and more about God as you worked your way from Genesis towards the New Testament. And when you get to the New Testament and you get to Jesus, no longer is the sun rising, it has risen. And God is on full display. And there's no more deeper revelation coming after Jesus. 
Jesus is the high noon of biblical revelation. And so though he's the same in Genesis 1 as he is in Matthew chapter 28, by the time that you get from Genesis 1 to Matthew 28, there's this process of God revealing himself to mankind, which has transpired and which you would come to appreciate as you read in that manner. What does steadfast love and righteousness look like? Reading through the history of God's people in the Old Testament, you would see things like the book of Judges, where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And God sent to them lowercase s saviors over and over again. This is where we read about Samson and Gideon and all these guys rescuing and saving. And God is persisting with these people. When we come all the way to Isaiah, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And it starts to get clearer and clearer. And then we see in the New Testament, Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Say, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick have come for these guys. Now we see what steadfast love looks like in grace. And all of these concepts which were latent in the Old Testament, we see these developed fully in Christ Jesus. Rather than dealing with God in types and shadows, we deal with God through substance and realities. We don't deal with God through a tabernacle, through earthly priests with sheep and goats and bulls and pigeons that we kill and whose blood we sprinkle here and there and so on and so forth. We deal with Jesus, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see and we understand the same things. It's not a different God or a different gospel or anything like this, but we understand these things more deeply. What did those things foreshadow and signify we see so clearly what it all means, what it, what it meant when Jesus comes on the scene for sinners and lays down His life for His friends and substitutes Himself. Words, Old Testament words like steadfast love and grace and atonement and sacrifice make so much more sense. And at Pentecost, God's Holy Spirit was poured out upon us to be Not only with us, but in us forever. Jesus said, that we are blessed to see what we see. Because many prophets longed to see this from afar. They knew it was coming, but here we have the noonday sun. The full disclosure. And so we can see clearly from our vantage point in history and from the revelation that God gives us in Scripture 
all of these excellencies of Christ, which David had but a shadowy glimpse of. And so the, the principle here of how much more applies. If even David could rejoice in who God is and what God has done and the communion that we could have with Him, we can hear Jesus saying to us, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And know that we can say then, my God, my God. We, like Thomas, after the resurrection, can come to Jesus' feet and say, bowing in worship, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And in view of all these things then, and the beauty of Christ and the excellencies of who He is revealed in their fullness, we can see that there is no suffering that outweighs the joy that we can find in Christ. His character and His actions are supremely enjoyable. In communion with Him, to know Him and to interact with Him is supremely enjoyable. And no suffering can change who God is. And no suffering can change our relationship with Him. So we can have deep joy in Christ despite, in the face of, in defiance of the suffering and the difficulty in our lives. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian during World War II who was imprisoned at the Nazi concentration camp Ravensbrück along with her sister. This woman knew suffering. And she survived the war and had a wonderful post-war ministry of encouragement, testifying to God's grace in the midst of her suffering and bringing a powerful message of reconciliation that's possible through the gospel. Even going so far as to reconcile in a powerful story that she tells with a man who had been a guard at Ravensbrook. This is what Jesus can do. And Corey Ten Boom famously said, There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. So we rejoice. And we rejoice in the Lord. And let's consider now the meaning of rejoicing always. Christians, we are to rejoice in every circumstance. Literally, no matter what is happening. We are to rejoice. As I said earlier, if our joy is in hell, then we lose our joy when we get sick. If our joy is in life, then we lose our joy when we're faced with death. If our joy is in relationships, then we lose our joy when these relationships fall apart. But if our joy is in Christ, then even death and disease and sickness can't rob us of joy. If our joy is in Christ, then rejection or betrayal or abandonment can't rob us of our joy in Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? After all, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We go through these things. Will these separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angel, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we find ourselves able to sing in the midst of it all. We Christians can sing. We can rejoice. We find the Ukrainians singing, He will hold me fast. Probably lots of you have seen that video. In the midst of the ravages of war. We find Paul and Silas at midnight in the jail singing. We may find ourselves like Jeremiah singing those words that he wrote in Lamentations which our brother read for us at the outset of the service. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. We may sing. We may rejoice. Not because everything's okay. Not because we're ignoring or denying or downplaying what's wrong. But because we're embracing even more reality than what's wrong. What's wrong is not the biggest reality in our lives. What's wrong is not the last word. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is greater. Jesus is more glorious. He is our God. Christians, join me in singing now with joy. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us sing it joyfully in defiance of our sorrow and response.